Hello and welcome once again to episode 110 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators helping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. Um, so we are actually recording this on the same day that we recorded the last episode. So if uh, Twitter has exploded in a fiery ball of doom uh, <laughs> since we've last recorded, we don't know about it yet. Uh, so please forgive us there. Uh, but we did have a few uh, news, uh, more news segments that we could uh, definitely talk about. Uh, so here we are. Uh, our first one is going to be about the iPhone 15. Uh, because apparently uh, all the things that we were speculating about uh, early on uh, regarding what the iPhone 15 would be capable of uh, may be a little bit more complicated uh, than we initially thought. So uh, quick recap, iPhone 15 is likely to get USB-C or nothing, uh, one of the two mm-hmm. options, but it seems like USB-C is more likely. Now, uh, the iPad, the most recent one that came out, the, the non-pro one, does have USB-C, but that USB-C is limited to USB 2, which is quite surprising. Um, and this yeah. is fueling some rumors that the current iPhone or the, the newest iPhone 15 non-pro model may also be like stuck at USB 2, which would be no difference from the current like, uh, iPad iPhones. Or um, yeah, because the lightning adapter on iPhones is only one sided. Uh, it doesn't use both sides. Uh, to achieve full USB 3 compatibility. Um, so they are also limited to USB 2 speeds. Um, so this would be like a no change there other than like a more universal connector, which I guess would be good. Um, and the iPhone 15 Pro would be the one that would get Thunderbolt. So that's like one scenario. The other scenario is both iPhone 15s just get USB 3 um, and then be done with it. Uh, and then I guess the third scenario is, uh, the regular iPhone 15 gets USB 3 and the 15 Pro gets Thunderbolt 4. Um, so those are like all the permutations that could possibly, uh, happen. Um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about iPads for a second because there's Thunderbolt on iPads Pro Mm -hmm. and it makes sense, right? Uh, connect to external storage. You can connect to an external display. There are uses uh, for a Thunderbolt on an iPad. I like the idea of getting Thunderbolt on an iPhone, but unless there's something like um, uh, what is it? Samsung's uh, Dex, I think, is what it's called, where you plug in your phone turns into a you know a computer basically with a full plug it into an external display. It's like a full you know desktop experience. Unless they do something like that with Stage Manager for iPhone as well, um, Thunderbolt seems kind of weird. I mean, yes, you could use something like LumaFusion, shout out, <laughs> uh, to for external uh, drive editing, which we do on iPad, um, and actually USB-C, anything that can support, like I think it's like 500 megabytes a second or whatever. Anyway, my point is there are options, but I think Thunderbolt would be fairly useless unless there is uh, like external display support. Although I suppose USB-C technically can support display out, although I don't know um, if iPads with just USB-C do that as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on details. They should do it not as like the external, like full-on stage manager thing, but as like an external like... 
here's a not mirroring, but a, here's a secondary yeah. display that apps can mirror to, not mirror to, mm-hmm. but present on. That has always okay. been possible. Uh, it's oh, only okay. been like really weird with like lightning. Uh, what was going on is it would like encode the video signal as H.264 and then decode it in the dongle as an HDMI signal. Like that's what was going on in the lightning era. Uh, era. Uh, so now it's finally like here's a pure pass through. Okay. A display port pass through. So things are better in that regard, but the phone has had the same capabilities as well. Um, so you can always connect like a phone to an external display projector, whatnot, uh, and presents via that if you didn't have AirPlay available. Um, not to mention gotcha. you would get a better connection. So if Apple were to do the Stage Manager route, I think that would be really cool because then it's like, hey, just yeah. take your phone with you to work and then plug it in. You have your keyboard and mouse there, Bluetooth, and you have like a mini computer that you yeah, can dude. just go ahead and use. Um, that would be like really, really awesome. Uh, you don't even need to account for the phone screen at that point. Maybe it becomes a trackpad. Maybe 3D Touch comes yeah. back. Um, oh, the, like oh, all of those man. would be like so so cool. Uh, as far as like a little thing, like yeah, keyboard on the phone would not work, but like trackpad yeah. and trackpad? just have a keyboard. Totally, definitely. Um, and that would be like a, a very cool little solution that uh, Apple could could do. Uh, I don't think they're gonna do it, but. Um, that is something that they could definitely do. Though they could more likely do the route of like, hey, if you do plug in an external display, you get Stage Manager, and if you have a, a mouse and keyboard, you can go ahead and use them like on the external yeah. display, and your phone screen turns off, yeah. um, or is used just for a notification center. Like, who knows? Like, what how Apple can do that? Side note: I hate notification center on the Mac. It is always in the way. Like every single time, it's like I get rid of the notifications and sometimes I like option click and then I get no notifications. Like I want them to come in. I just never want them to stay there. Um, yeah. Anyways, um, I can definitely see a world where like that could be totally cool. That said, USB-C does that. So doesn't necessarily need Thunderbolt. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, why not put Thunderbolts, right? Then you can yeah. do all sorts of cool things. Thunderbolt docks, stuff like that. It's another you know, reason for the pro moniker as well to throw that on your iPhones, just like it has on, on iPads. So yeah, it's ridiculous. Like 1% of users will use it, but it's like a super cool thing to show off uh, that can get other people that were like hardcore Android users because Android is more customizable and uh, like more uh, productive. (laughs) Um, Like I know so many people that claim that, uh, which is why I bring it up. Um, and like that can help them want to maybe switch because then the iPhone yep. can become their computing device that they use twenty four seven. Um and like I might be down with that. Like I, I now work out of my home, so maybe it's like less useful for me, but that is like such a cool idea. If that were kinda like the switch is like the, the perfect like Game Boy yes. that I would have wished for, this would be the perfect computer that I would have wished for. Um before I went yeah. like all in on craziness. Um, I think the use case of having your phone as, yeah, plugging it in and turning it into a computer is like, my first thought is like, I don't know, you're at a hotel or something and you want to plug into the TV to like watch a movie or something. You don't have to lug a laptop and a dongle around. You just slap it into your phone and, you know, you're you're off the races. That that kind of thing where you're in a situation where or well, you'd have to have a library, HDMI dongle. Well, okay, yeah, I don't know. There are use cases where I think it it could be cool. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm trying. I'm trying to help Apple. I'm trying to will it into existence. You know, 
So yeah, definitely, definitely something that could happen. Um, I think it would be really cool if it does happen. Um, Mm -hmm. it'd be unfortunate if the iPhone 15, like regular model were stuck at USB 2C speeds, but like it's no bad, it's no different than what we currently have. So, uh, other than like swapping out all the cables, which you'll get a cable in the box. So it's not the, the end of the world. Um, but yeah. Um, one last thing I did want to bring up is since, since I got, uh, uh, as Spencer called it, the baller network now, um, I was able to test things a little bit more thoroughly with wireless debugging, um, which is something that any iOS developer, uh, will like often go ahead and, um, like experience at least once in their life. Uh, whether you forgot to plug something in or you did not want to reach for the cable or you had something actively going and you wanted to connect to it immediately. Uh, so wireless debugging is kind of useful, except it's really slow on, on most, in most scenarios. So, uh, now that I have a full Wi-Fi 6, uh, set up with like many access points that can be like independently dedicated to a device and stuff like that, um, I got a chance to try this out a little bit more. Um, and what I can report is that when the iPhone is connected as like the sole high bandwidth, uh, device on the network at that moment in time, um, and I'm using a computer that is hardwired like the Mac Studio, I can get much faster and much, uh, smoother wireless debugging than I can over wired, meaning that the connection Mm. is much, much better to the point where I'm getting over gigabit speeds, uh, which since Wi-Fi is half duplex is like better than USB two. Um, so that has been a pleasant surprise, uh, that I was not expecting. However, if I switch over to a laptop, which is wireless and then the phone, which is also wireless, uh, remember Wi-Fi is like half duplex. And what this means, but what I mean by when I say half duplex is, is it means that only one thing can communicate in the air at once. So it's your laptop communicating to the base, to the access point. And then that connection is done. And now the access point is communicating to the phone. And then that connection is done. Now the phone is communicating to the action point. Now that connection is done. So you basically divide the airspace by four, um, for like two high bandwidth devices. Uh, and that cuts it down below, uh, USB two speeds. And that's why it still is not great. Um, so if you were hoping that Wi-Fi 6 would solve your wireless debugging needs, it kind of solves it if you have a wired computer. Um, it does not solve it if you have a wireless, uh, computer and wireless phone, uh, at the same time, because there's just, uh, a bandwidth, like, uh, sync in, in terms Mm of, uh, of something that you need to worry about. Um, so that's just not possible. So that said, I did get to experience faster than USB like wireless debugging and it is faster. It's less latent. You get more data coming through. You can inspect variables more quickly. Uh, you can download, uh, archives from the phone to your, um, to your computer more quickly. Um, so all of that is possible. And I was like pretty cool actually. So, um, although we may not care to get Thunderbolt, uh, having USB three at the very least is going to be a huge improvement in that regard that I don't think any of us were really hoping or expecting. But now that I kind of got a glimpse of that, uh, I'm really looking forward to. That's cool. I um, I was just kind of trying to jog my memory. I use an iPad Air um, 
fourth generation, I think. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a fourth. Um, and I was just trying to like see if my experience has matched yours, but I'm I'm using iPads most of the time, and I just realized that it has a five gigabit per second USB C port. So the the wire debugging that I'm doing is always going to be faster. And like for mm-hmm. example, the view debugger is always way way slow on a wireless connection. But as soon as I plug it in with the USB C cable, it's quite fast. So. Um, that makes sense. But yeah, having that on iPhone for most people would be, most developers would be really, really nice. So next on my merry list of topics, um, Xcode 14 uh, has made your app into a chonky boy. Um, and this is because Bitcode has gone away. Um, and with Bitcode was a setting to not include a bunch of symbols uh, that uh, Bitcode would have stripped anyways. So uh, it turns out that a bunch of apps that have been submitted to the App Store since iPhone 14 came out have suddenly gotten much larger um, because they are including those symbols, um, and uh, that is not great. Yeah, this is interesting. And to be honest, I'm not very versed in in kind of all of this, uh, like stripping. Um, yeah, big, yeah, strip big code, not symbols. Um, so. In Xcode 14's release notes, it says Xcode no longer builds Bitcode by default. The capability to build with Bitcode will be removed in a future Xcode release. Um, so, my, I, I, this is where I wanted to ask for clarification. So, are they making it so that you, you have to upload your app, and Apple on their servers will strip the Bitcode for you, or the opposite? Does so, if yeah, so Bitcode is an option Going that you forward. turn on when you upload. Um, so going forward, Xcode 14 doesn't support it anymore. Um, and Apps or Connect won't support it if you are submitting from Xcode 14. So Xcode 14 will submit the non-Bitcode version, the raw binary um, of your app. However, uh, that will include binary symbols, which basically means right. okay. ways that the debugger um, and like crash reports can go ahead and link uh, your code to like the actual yeah. names of your classes, the names of your functions yeah. and all that. Um, that's all included with your build, which means that uh, it will increase the size of your build dramatically because instead of having like a one byte uh, pointer to something that's to nice. indicate yeah. like, hey, this is my method, uh, it's never going to be one byte. But instead of having a single byte for that, uh, you now have two dozen bytes to describe your very long method name, uh, right? Um, and that is included for like every function, every class, every type um, that's in your app um, as like a loose definition of like what's going on here. I'm sure it's much more in depth. And like you, Spencer, I understand very little of this. Um, I'm only reporting it. Uh, so um, the, it is possible to like fix this. Um, you just have to add additional Xcode build settings um, and... Uh, these are some gnarly ones. So to give you an idea yeah. of this, uh, you have to turn deployment post-processing to yes, stripped linked product to yes, ad- add additional strip flags to dash lowercase r, uppercase s, uppercase t, lowercase x. Don't take that from a podcast. Look it up in the source because that can... Yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling sneaking suspicion getting these specific combination of letters wrong is going to cause chaos. Um, and, uh, leave all other stripping settings to their default. So, 
my recommendation is if you're a small developer and you are not not hit yet by the um, the app needs to be under 100 megabytes for cellular um, or whatnot uh, limitation, then I would leave things as is and wait for a new version of Xcode that like properly uh, includes this as a default. Um, but in the case that it doesn't and you do want to fix it, like here's a solution um, that you can go ahead and do. So, yeah. Um, in this in this blog uh, post that we were kind of reading this off of, there's a why this matters section. I think it's really good because um, I've kind of recently been a part of this where I haven't in a long time. So it says, as Apple said in their Xcode 14 video, app size is the first thing your user will notice and users do pay attention. Um, as well, Google Play's console, Google's Play Console documentation has kind of a similar recommendation. Um, I haven't cared about app size in a long time. And then I downsized to an iPad mini uh, that has 64 gigs. And when I just set it up with my old iPad Pro that had a terabyte of storage, um, there were a lot of apps that I was just like, oh, I I just download everything because I have the space for it. But now I actually have to be conscious of it. And I have gone into uh, my iPad settings and, and it will list things. Uh, in descending order by how much space it's taking up. And so if I'm not using the app, I will just delete the, the app that's the largest uh, that's taking up the most space so I don't have to delete as many apps. So I definitely get the sentiment of uh, it definitely matters if your app is significantly larger. So in this, they've got a couple tables. Let's see if I can find. Uh, yeah. So like the Nike app, for example, is 323 megabytes. The symbols that could be stripped are 128.6 megabytes of that. That's a lot. That's a ton of space. I mean, that's many, many small apps that could be installed. So there's like a real kind of significant um, difference that this can make for people that aren't using like baller iPads and iPhones with a bunch of space. Uh, so an interesting kind of... Um, result i suppose of i don't know if this was sort of a bug or that um that xcode 14 is making these larger or it's just that's the way it's going to be and we have to be conscious of adding uh, those settings that dimitri mentioned just in order to keep the size down to what it was like if you released with xcode 13 it would be x amount smaller so there's kind of a fairly large significant difference between versions of Xcode. Yeah, I don't think it was a bug more than an oversight because once again, mm. if you use Bitcode, it would do this automatically. Um, it's just not using Bitcode never did this. Um, it's always been something that you have to specify. So I can definitely see Apple updating like Xcode 14.2 uh, to include these options by default. Um, and then therefore, when you submit your app for archive, um, to the app store, then you don't have these same issues. Talking about things that have plenty of issues, uh, Nintendo and Game Freak, um, Nintendo and Game Freak, uh, just released a brand new, uh, version of Pokemon. Um, I don't remember which generation this is. There are a lot. I think it's 10, eight or nine, sorry, nine or 10. I can't remember. It's been, yeah, there are a lot. Yeah. Um, and in any case, uh, this new version of Pokemon just came out like right after another version of Pokemon came out like last year. 
Um, and, uh, it seems that, uh, a little bit of jank sneaked in, um, specifically regarding the entire game. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yep. Um, so our, 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 uh, our, our favorite follow, uh, ZFG, which plays a lot of Zelda speedruns, uh, went and played this game because he's a Pokemon fanatic as much as a Zelda fanatic. Um, and he recorded all of the jank for our viewing pleasure. Um, and there's a lot of jank. Um, so much jank from, from just, hey, he was saying like the frame rate doesn't bother me because I'm used to playing 20 FPS, basically the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, which came out 30 something years ago, uh, at this point. Um, yeah. and he is comparing it to that. <laughs> so he's saying, oh, this is okay because that is what I'm used to. Um, so yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> There were, there were, there was one point, I think it was in the video. I don't know. I've watched a couple of videos on it, but I think it was in his where there was literally a one second stutter where it just fro the app, the, the game froze. I mean, it's, it's bad. It, uh, yeah. And people walking in the background at about three to <laughs> the five. The walking FPS, animations so are they're so... just like, yeah, everything is smooth except the walking is just like robots. And then they suddenly disappear. Um, and then it's like, they're back and yeah, yeah, the game, the game is having trouble, uh, running. And a lot of people are saying, oh, the Switch hardware is like not great. Um, but at the same time you have Breath of the Wild, which came out five years prior. Uh, you have Xenoblade Chronicles, which is like gorgeous by comparison. Um, and it's just like, yeah, there's there's no excuse. Jank. The, I I guess there is an excuse and that excuse is we shouldn't be forcing teams to make new games for these like very large platforms every year. Right. That's the part that is like falling apart here because there are so many places where like there's one where you can get the main characters to like eat a snack or whatnot. And (laughs) let me, let me visual like uh, with words describe to you. Like, exactly what's going on here. So there's a background of, like, a hand-drawn sandwich, okay? And then this 3D character comes in from the, from the right side, um, like, 90 degrees to profile. I don't know what you would call that. You see the side of their face. Uh, and then they just make a chopping, like, animation. Uh, and then all of a sudden it zooms out to that character with just a bunch of Pokemon around them, like, haphazardly placed. And they're like, yum! Um, like, that's, that's, basically what's going on and it does not feel polished it feels like okay we need something so let's put a uh an fpo image here so for placement only for the non uh publishing nerds out there um and (laughs) (laughs) i guess it's everyone um and yeah like that's that's just what it is and it's because they didn't have enough time to polish it like i can assure you that if they had another year a whole lot more of this would be like really nice looking um and we wonder why like hey why is a breath of the wild 2 slash tears of the kingdom taking another five years to develop like that's how long the original game took um and that's because they're taking their time on it and they don't want to they don't want to um like piss everyone off and make a bad product yeah they want they're very proud of what they're making and it seems like game freak did not have that same leeway uh which is really unfortunate i don't know who's to blame here is it nintendo the pokemon company game freak um whatever that other company that worked on it is um there's just like so much uh here that could have gone wrong it's just yeah 
the sentiment online, and I don't know, you know, I haven't really looked into it much myself, but it seems like a lot of people are blaming Game Freak for just like using Pokemon as sort of more of a cash grab type of thing and not really putting their heart into it. Where, um, yeah, in the last probably 18 month time period, there have been three releases. Um, one was sort of a re release from, uh, I don't know, 2011 or so, uh, 2010. Uh, it was pretty good and Game Freak didn't work on it. Like it was, I think it was a little buggy, but it was like, it was a fun game. I replayed it cause it was a Pokemon game from my childhood and it was fun to kind of play it in 3d. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the one before that, I also think Game Freak didn't work on it it was kind of jank, but like, it was pretty ambitious for what it was. Um, but this one, yeah. Anyway, I can't remember again where I was watching it. Cause I've watched a few videos on this, but someone mentioned kind of an idea of <clears throat> if they want to have this like gnarly release cadence of like one game a year, then split them into three teams and segment them out. So each team has three years to work on it and they're releasing every year between teams. But there's enough time to sort of polish and everything and kind of giving mm-hmm. yourself more time to work on this is kind of a good idea where, uh, this I sort of definitely see as like a parallel to app development where we've talked about, you know, when to release an app and, you know, being precious about time and not, um, releasing too early, but not releasing too late. And there's, there's this fine line. And I think game freak did not find that fine line there. They were just like, yes, let's get money out. I know that they announced this game a while ago, um, maybe six or nine months ago. So I know that people know about it, but people know about, yeah, like like you said, Breath of the Wild. It's uh, It was announced, and then the second, um, Tears of the Kingdom, I don't know when the first re- announcement was, two years ago plus, and they've been working on it. And we're all sitting here anxiously waiting, but we're not... Uh, out in the streets, like egging Nintendo headquarters or anything, because it's not out. Because we know uh, that Nintendo is very precious about uh, Zelda games in general, um, and they turn out really good. in in general, again, Skyward Sword, I don't know, not my favorite, but that's that's another topic for another day. Um, but I think Game Freak's just like, oh yeah, let's let's cash grab. It's been it's been nine months since we released a Pokemon game. Let's let's get some more money and not do anything with it, like build our team and make a better product. I don't know. I'm salty because I wanted to play it. I'm going on a trip and I, this was a perfect game for me to play. And now I'm like, okay, I'll bring my steam deck instead. I'm not bringing the switch. Cause there's nothing good to play for it. So <laughs> quick Sorry. question. Yeah. Uh, have you retried skyward sword with the, uh, the non motion controls? No, no, no. Cause the motion controls, I, I beat the game and I, I like I played the whole thing, but there were a couple of points where I wanted to throw the freaking controller because it didn't work well and it was annoying. Um, yeah, so, so I, I, Skyward Sword is, yeah. For those for those that don't know, uh, Skyward Sword is like Nintendo's foray into what if uh, everyone could swing their Wiimote like Link swings the sword, and then you can have a lot of fun with that. And it either worked really well or it was catastrophic. Um, and the catastrophic cases made a whole bunch of people really mad. Case in point. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Spencer. <Yeah. laughs> You're my example here. Um, 
however, uh, when app, when Nintendo, uh, re-released Skyward Sword for the Switch, uh, they've, in their infinite wisdom, brought motion controls back to the Joy-Cons, but they also brought, uh, non-motion controls to, like, the Pro Controller, uh, and stuff like that. So, you can choose not to do the whole motion control thing, other than for, like, slight aiming, which has been generally good, um, in yeah. most Zelda games. Um, so, uh, this is an option now, uh, and from my own experience and from what I've heard from others that have used it, it makes the game way better and also way easier because the the difficulty was the motion controls <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. Uh, now yeah. you can just like <laughs> flick your controller really, really quickly and defeat most enemies really, really quickly mm. uh, before they have a chance to like react. Um, so yeah, if you've been holding out on Skyward Sword, um, it is a pretty good game motion controls set aside like that's either you like them or you hate them um but the the actual story there the actual characters like it's a good game there's fun there's a lot of fun in it there's a lot of dungeons Mm -hmm. um so yeah i definitely recommend if you've been holding out because of the fear of motion controls that you give it another try um because like it does make it easier without the motion controls because you can flick so much faster than like than the enemies can like adapt their stance so basically yeah like enemies (laughs) would say hey I'm blocking the top and bottom, so you'd have to do a horizontal cut. And then, like, the with the motion controls, it would get desynced, and then, like, your horizontal cut would be a vertical, and you'd be, like, yelling, because then you'd miss that uh, opening. Whereas now you can go <laughs> flick, 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 and you get four hits in before the enemy is like, ah, let me change it, and they're already dead. So uh, mm-hmm. it's way easier, okay. way better. Okay. Um, and just, like, resetting resetting the, the calibration, because it, it is a good game. Um, and it is fun, like playing with hook shots and stuff like that. Uh, and there's some like fun new, fun new items in there. So, yeah, oh. I just hate the tears. The damn tear collection can die. Oh on. my, that too. <laughs> and that's like the most stressful part, man. When everything is chasing you. Uh, yeah, oh, I don't oh. like it. I, I, I need Scarf less anxiety life. in my life. <laughs> yeah. So as long as Tears of the Kingdom does not include those kind of tears, I'm going to be a happy camper. Yeah. If it includes those kind of tears, I'm going to be like, I, I'm too afraid to continue <laughs> because I, I don't like that anxiety. Um, there will be yeah. many tears. Tears shed. <laughs> tears shed. Exactly. Um, talking about tears shedding, uh, we are now in year three of the Apple Silicon transition, a transition that was meant to take only two years. Um, yeah. Our tear shedding. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm in general happy with the way that it's turned out. I think most everyone has been pleasantly surprised with, at least like the performance wise, right? Um, and we're on almost everything is transitioned. I think we have the Mac Pro, uh, which is still on Xeons, and then we have one tier of Mac Minis, like the lowest tier of Mac Minis, if I remember right. That's still. Are, on, are they like you can still buy them? I think so. Um, I'm gonna look that up really quickly. Yeah, uh, but definitely the Mac Pro is is still on Xeons. We haven't uh, seen my patent pending Apple One M1 Extreme uh, powered iMac or Mac Pro. I'm I'm sticking to it. It's gonna happen. Um, so r- real time follow up: Intel Core i5 six core processor with Intel UHD graphics 630. Um, that Mac Mini is still for sale. Interesting. It's a thousand. And it is more. Yeah, it's more expensive oh! than the other ones, which like smoke it. Um, but I guess there's a need for Intel Mac Mini still. So I suppose so. Then that's they're selling. So them. 
we're close. We're what, like, what would you call that? 85, 80% there as far as the transition goes um, in terms of lineup. By units sold, um, 99%. Um, like, surely. Um, by by lineup, I would say, like, 80 sounds reasonable. Like, I think we need that Mac Pro to exist just so that way we have that prime example of, like, this is the best, Apple at its best in terms of, like, smoking out all the competition. Um, I think it's pretty clear we're not going to get an M1 Extreme or whatnot. No. Um, like, that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, and there were, like, additional specs for the M2, like, the die shots, um, in terms of, like, the M1 Pro and, and, uh, Max, Max, right? M1 Max. Uh, the M1 Max had, like, the opportunity to grow the die on one side. It seems like the yep. M2 has the ability to grow the die on two sides. Um, mm. and this is, like, all stuff that hasn't been released. Like, we don't have an M2 Pro or max yet so right. the way i see it happening we'll likely get m2s of everything uh including the mac mini the macbook pros the imac um that will likely happen first and then we will likely also get a glimpse at the m2 extreme which would be the 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 big the big chip basically that can that can do it all um yeah. and uh with that ecc memory um and all the something all the good like, stuff yeah something like 180 120 gpu cores i mean it was like it was a lot there i mm-hmm. mean it's gonna be just stupid powerful um and maybe it's good that it got delayed you. right because yeah, like none no, of sure. a lot of the software didn't catch up yet so this is giving it an opportunity for all that software to become available and then to really show the power that can be used yeah Okay, so like real time follow up for you, because um, you have you or and or Lynn, I don't know who's using it, have an M1 Max powered MacBook Pro, right? Yeah, both of us. Okay, okay. So then, comparing that to the M1 Ultra that you have in the studio, do you feel like the studio is taking advantage of like double the horsepower? It's taking advantage of double the RAM. That's the piece okay. that well, it really yeah, benefits you, from. Yeah. Um, Xcode builds have been starting to take advantage of it. I, I posted on, on Twitter, uh, rest in peace, um, many, many months ago about how uh, X, on Xcode 13, anyways, uh, builds were slower on the studio than they were on the Macs. Um, that has changed with Xcode 14. They are uh, much faster there as well. Um, and that is like... The, the biggest part, though, is the extra RAM that is available. Um, at mm. least on my MacBook Pro, on Ventura, I'm running into tons of resource limitations where, like, having too many apps open and now the GPU is just, like, not having it. Um, like, new Safari windows open up with a black screen um, until, yeah. you, like, you close something and then, like, you see the texture suddenly coming in. Like, you can select text and then that text suddenly draws in uh, Sketch, for instance, will have a big pink screen, um, and a whole bunch of other <laughs> apps have been having like similar graphical issues. Um, so this is not limited to just like one app or anything. This is like a Ventura thing. So I'm seeing a lot of those on the M1 Max, uh, or yeah, Max MacBook uh, Pro M1 Max. Um, please change that one. Just that Maybe. one. Just swap it out with something else. 
Um, yeah, the M1 big nomenclature. Yeah, um, big boy, <laughs> the big boy. So yeah, I can I can definitely see the utility in having faster processors. I don't think I would need them yet because I still have the studio, and that is like solving my needs in that regard. Um, but yeah. yeah, the an M2 with more RAM would definitely be nice. Um, and an M2 yeah. Ultra Extreme Pro Ultimum uh, Platinum Edition uh, that will 5G. be like yeah 6G. 6G. Oh. Um, 6G, 6G, 6G. Um, we'll have lots of 6G <laughs> capabilities. Um, and I think that will be, that will be like a good space for Apple to say, like, here's where we're putting our, our flag, right? Um, and this is the processor that, uh, Intel is actually competing with. Because Intel's like, oh yeah, look, we finally beat the M1. Um, and meanwhile, their thing like guzzles up electricity and power, uh, at the same time. Yeah. It's like, and it's like, it won't ever fit in the form factors that Apple's like touting the M1 for. So yeah, there's an opportunity for, for that, them to really show off and like put their flag somewhere far and then let everyone catch up to that. Um, and meanwhile, all their other chips would be like, it would also need to catch up to that, but they'll catch up in due time. Right. Um, and I think that will be good. I used to think that the, the major need for this system would have been for ECC RAM, but apparently, uh, like the RAM in the current M1 chips, like has similar ECC capabilities to make sure that things are like mm-hmm. accurate. Um, or, or so I've read, uh, so maybe ECC yeah. RAM is no longer really necessary. I'm not too sure. Yeah. Were you, uh, the M1 chips use DDR4 though, right? Oh yeah, probably. It's DDR5 that has it, right? DDR5 is the one that has like on memory, like on die, I think they call it, uh, ECC. So it's not like, I, I think necessarily a processor thing that has to support ECC. It's more like, I think DDR5 can just do it itself, if I remember right. So yeah, maybe the, the M1 extra, or sorry, M2 or M3 will have DDR5. Yeah, it seems like uh, it has DDR4 or LPDDR4. I don't know. Not sure. Um, quick, yeah. quick research is not yielding anything. Um, <laughs> so uh, we'll we'll have to see, like if if it's something that is going to come soon or not. But um, I'm definitely looking forward to it in general. Think overall, the transition has been good and longer than probably anyone expected, including Apple. But we also did have a two plus year pandemic uh, right in the middle of that, so that definitely did not help. Uh, but I mean, I'm all yeah. On the it was it back. was announced right before the pandemic, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Bad timing, but look what they've done with it as well. I mean. Mm-hmm. Got new MacBook Pros that are killer. They came out with the the Mac Studio, and uh, overall, I think it's been hyper positive. Yeah, definitely. This week's episode of Code Completion is brought to you by Sweek- Weekly Swift Exercises. Learning Swift, there's no substitute for practicing. There's dozens, literally dozens, of people Fernando's mentored through different programs, and he's seen it time and time again. After you learn the basics of programming, you slow down because learning through experience is demanding and painful. Increasing your confidence is key, and there's an easy way to do it, practice. 
Fernando's weekly exercises help you practice concepts like closures and protocols while implementing actual features like dark mode. It's free to join. Besides the exercises, Fernando spends one or two, uh, sends one or two articles about learning Swift. Some are technical in nature, but most of them will help you in your career by teaching you things like best practices, working as a team, and getting ready to get your first job. Thanks again to Fernando and Weekly Swift Exercises for sponsoring Code Completion. Go to twitter.com slash swift exercises today to learn more. So Spencer, uh, I've got a code completion tip for you. I'm sure there has been a time when you're writing some sort of network controller, right? Uh, and you need to make an API call with the server and they return back to you some JSON, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, this JSON me. might not be something you use in your app. It might be like a, a helper struct that you just need for that one endpoint, and you'll use it for nothing else, right? Pretty mm-hmm. common? Okay. Yeah. So, oftentimes, we end up needing to write the struct somewhere, um, and then we go ahead and use it. But did you know that in that function where you're making that, that API call, probably now in async, call and it's all in one one nice line of code you can go ahead and define a struct that is codable uh with all your all your properties and have that be inside of the function that uses it so nothing else needs to see that it exists i did know that um i don't i haven't really had an opportunity to use that in ios code but i use it a ton when i'm writing vapor stuff because mm-hmm. Oftentimes it's like sort of the opposite where um, it will like the the client will send me some JSON and I want to decode it on the server side. And yeah, I just do it inside of that function. So that's something that I've used quite often. And it's very nice because uh, I mean, that's a lot of what I've done with Vapor is really just, you know, sending and receiving JSON. So there's a ton of codable structs in that um, in that Vapor app. So having it just kind of centralized into that one specific function and not or sort of, I guess, decentralized, and it's just in that one function instead of, uh, you know, getting code completion to come up with just a billion different structs with very similar mm-hmm. names um, has been really nice. So, yes, that has been an awesome one. Um, highly, highly recommend for, for stuff like that. That's probably, yeah, I guess the best example is like using JSON. Not really sure mm-hmm. when you would need um, kind of a very specific struct unless you wanted to maybe... Um, use a, a struct instead of um like a tuple for something just quick and quick and dirty but yeah unfortunately that would need to live outside of the function in most cases because the biggest use for tuples is to like return the tuple as the return value. i guess that's true and yeah. that one would need to live with the type itself but in this particular case it lives within the function so you have like func mm-hmm. um in this case like parse uh request for user login for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in yeah. there, you can have struct requests of type codable, have your parameters, struct response of type codable, have your parameters, uh, and then just do the decoding that you would need to do, and then do the encoding that you would need to do, and it's all really localized. And then that means that, hey, every one of your endpoints has a request and response struct. It's super regular, very easy to go ahead and find. Um, autocomplete is very, like, what you expect. You don't have to look far for those types. They're literally on the same like scrollable part of the screen because oftentimes these endpoints can be much smaller uh, thanks to yeah. async await. Um, so it's super, super useful. And if you can find a use for them like in that more limited scope, maybe along with inline functions, right? Um, then hey. you can go ahead and do all sorts of really cool things that don't pollute your code completion space um, because... Yes. 
that can get quickly out of hand once you have tons and tons of types. And you can try, okay, this is private to this file and so on, so on and so forth. Um, but this is even better than that because it's just really private to the function. You don't have to say it's private. You just have to declare it in there. Um, and no one yeah. else uh, really sees that it exists other than whoever's editing those lines of code. As always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter or Mastodon at Code Completion. Uh, and on Mastodon, uh, that will be uh, iosdev.space slash at Code Completion. Uh, so this is a new Mastodon uh, server dedicated to iOS developers. So do uh, check it out. Um, nice. And uh, let us know when what types of topics you'd like for us to discuss. Um, most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis, that's S-P-E-N-C-C-U-R-T-I-S on Twitter and or Macedon, um, for joining me this week. My name, once again, is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Buñol, that's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. Uh, either on Twitter or Mastodon.social, and we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. So, Spencer, I hear that you've made uh, good use of your 3D printer to relive nostalgia. I have, yes. So, um, as you know, 3D printers use, uh, well, normal uh, sort of, there are a couple types of 3D printers, but the most common ones use just uh, like a, a strand of filament, and it's just a single color. Uh, someone came around and has sort of fused multiple colors. They make them in two and three uh, colors where instead of it just being a single strand of color, they've fused that single strand into two colors. Um, so they, they make like a red and blue. And the one I got, I'll, I'll link it, is I think it's yellow, green, and red, if I remember right. So the original reason I got this is my sister really likes plants and I found this cool planter. That's kind of this glitchy, almost um, bismuth crystal looking planter. And because of the way that the colors are kind of just, it's just this kind of uh, 33% of each color type of thing. Directionally, it just fuses the colors and, and kind of mixes them in a kind of, kind of cool way. And it makes this kind of silky rainbow colored bismuthy looking thing. And I was like, okay, I have now almost a kilogram of this filament that is like creates this rainbow color. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. And then I was like, Oh, I have the perfect thing. And it is the Nintendo 64 logo. And it almost looks like it was, uh, it doesn't quite have the same colors, but like the, the green and, and blue is pretty spot on. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's so cool. So, uh, it's been fun to mess around with this and just kind of, create these 3d prints that uh, I'm just so used to seeing in a single color having a, a non expensive 3d printer that doesn't have, you know, multiple extruders or m ways of kind of fusing the colors to make multiple colors in a single print has been very interesting and kind of a cool um, way of, you know, paying homage to one of the best consoles of all time. So yeah, it's been cool. very, very cool. Yeah. I am I'm like super jealous. One day I'm going to go into this 3D <laughs> printer space. I think I'm still waiting yeah. for A, it to get a little bit better, and B, for me mm -hmm. to have time to play. Um, 
And then once those two things happen, I'm just going to like disappear for a while uh, and deal with that. (laughs) So uh, if if you don't hear from me uh, because I've disappeared on Twitter, it's not because (laughs) Twitter went completely. It's because I got myself a 3D printer. Um, Nice. I think the cool part about 3D printing is like when the printer is working, and which is most of the time, um, it's kind of like a set it and forget it thing where you just like mm-hmm. you, you choose the model you want to do, you send it to your printer, and then like eight or so hours later, depending on the size of your print, it's done. And so it's not really something you have to baby a ton, um, but you know, you do have to level it and there's a little bit to do, so... And yeah, you can send it to the printer fun hobby. via Wi-Fi now, right? Yeah. Um, depends on the printer. Some have it built in, but I just use a Raspberry Pi, and it just connects to the USB port on the printer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole web interface that I use to just do that. And I have it connected to uh, a cheap webcam as well, so I can monitor the print from the other room, and I don't have to be walking in checking on the print. I can just pull up the web interface and you know say, oh, yeah, it, it works great, or... Uh, the first layer didn't adhere correctly, so I need to stop it. Chaos. Stop it early. Yeah. uh, I've got a couple... I've broken the the print head a couple times because I left it overnight and didn't check it, and uh, it turned into, like, literally a glob this big of of just fused plastic to the print head, so that... (laughs) Oh, uh, no. That was fun, but luckily the printer I have is both cheap and open source, so people sell replacement sort of just, like, the print head on amazon and it's like 15 dollars to replace so luckily it's not like an expensive mistake but mm-hmm. i keep that piece of plastic around right next to the printer as a reminder, as a reminder. To, uh, <laughs> to make sure that i check on things right uh before i let it go for a long time especially if i'm going to be sleeping yeah fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me kind of thing <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> yeah i imagine you probably also want to have like an apc power backup uh, kind of thing for the printer uh, because it does last multiple hours and one power blip could cause the whole thing to go crazy right yeah it's a good idea and i don't have one um luckily there is a you can uh, just set it in the firmware to actually it'll sort of save where it's at um and if the power does go out it can actually resume printing even if it gets turned off which i think is pretty pretty uh crazy the um the firmware that they use there's a couple of them but i think they're both open source um and actively worked on on github so you could like go check it out it's i think all written in c so it's very customizable where if you want to like build your own completely unique 3d printer with its own specific sizes or whatever uh all you do is you edit this um this file and it's really just like defining headers and like defining variables with like hashtag define whatever and you just say like, oh yeah, the the X length is 500 millimeters, and it does that, and it works out how to do everything else. So, um, people make like precompiled firmware, but also looking into the firmware and changing things about it is pretty easy. And at, at least for a programmer that's like seen code before, you just open up VS Code and stuff, and it's uh, fairly accessible. So, kind of cool. Very very cool. All right. See ya. Bye everyone.